Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, our guest took the helm of Pacific Gas and Electric Company three years ago, just after the nation's largest utility emerged from bankruptcy, and as it continues to face existential questions about its future at a time of climate change and evolving energy markets. Patty Poppy's here. She's now steering PG&E through multiple challenges, including recent rate hikes, the continuing threat of wildfires, and distrust of the company among many of its 16 million customers. We're going to ask her about all that. And I got you to say existential in the lead, which was fun. I know. I was I was afraid of pronouncing <laughs> that, but I think I got it right. Uh, but before we bring Patty Poppy and Scott, we do have to talk about some news this week, which is that Bakersfield Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy is stepping down. He announced this in a bit of a surreal Wall Street Journal uh, editorial today saying he will not finish his term. He's going to leave at the end of the year. This comes two months, of course, after he was ousted as speaker by the far right faction in the House. And he says he did what, as I said, surreal. He says he did what he set out to accomplish. Uh, no matter the odds or personal cost, we did the right thing. Yeah, of um, course, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that, you know, history will judge, <laughs> like January 6th, for example, um, where, of course, uh, there was the, the Trump-inspired mob stormed the Capitol. And it's interesting because, you know, McCarthy was never really trusted by the far right part of his party. Right. Uh, they Even were, though the, he really aligned himself with them more than the moderates, yeah. honestly. Well, in, in many ways, certainly increasingly as time went by and, you know, that changed from the time he was in Sacramento. But, you know, he was too willing to talk to Democrats, too willing to keep the government open, not willing to sort of force a crisis uh, when it came to government uh, spending or government uh, funding as well. Um, so, you know, I think it, we all remember when he got came to the House floor on January 6th and really went after Trump, right. blaming him for what happened. And then like a few Within weeks later- month, yeah. Was down at Mar-a-Lago. Kissing the ring, basically. I mean, it really was a a remarkable, especially when we heard later on some of the things he was saying behind the scenes. Um, But, you know, I do think to your point, you know, McCarthy came up in Sacramento as a lawmaker here in California and was very well liked across the aisle, was seen as a pretty centrist Republican, kind of a backslapper, always been good at fundraising and yeah, Um, but not somebody with like huge policy chops. And I think, you know, in some ways that kind of came back to bite him because there was so little trust of him among these wings of the party because he hadn't ever been, you know, uh, you may disagree with him or agree with him, but like someone like Mike Johnson, the current speaker, is clearly coming from a very specific point of view. He is, although, you know, he did some of the same things that McCarthy did and was deposed over, like, you know, a government funding bill. Um, And so I think, you know, it's one thing to be a Matt Gates from Florida where you're throwing bombs all the time. It's another thing, and Nancy Pelosi talked with us about 
about this many times, to be in charge of the caucus. You know, you have to get things done. You have to round up the votes. You have to count the votes. And you have to make people believe that they can trust you even if they you don't do what they ultimately want. And well, I think that that is lacking in general in this Republican caucus, but certainly he, he had challenges with that. He did, and I think even Democrats didn't trust him. You know, at the end when the vote came to... Especially uh, Democrats. Well, but I think there were some people, uh, you know, Hakeem Jeffries, I think they considered maybe cutting some kind of a deal on a power-sharing arrangement with him. But in the end, the caucus just didn't trust him. They felt, yeah. you know, whether it was the imp- going after the impeachment inquiry of Biden or Hunter Biden, all those things, you know, and, and just sort of backtracking on promises that they just didn't want to keep him there. Right. I mean, it is interesting, you know, the thing that he was very good at was fundraising. He raised hundreds of millions of dollars for Republicans. I mean, just his ousting, I think, sounded some alarms within, you know, the the campaign wings of the Republican caucus. Um, and it's going to be fascinating to see, A, what he does next. He says he's he still wants to be involved, whatever that means. So we'll see if he's still involved in Republican politics. Um, but what it'll do to some of these competitive House races here in California, you know, he really has helped folks like David Valadeo in the Central Valley. Protected um, him yeah, from Trump. Uh, young uh, Kim down in Orange County keep their seats at times. Yeah. And, you know, it, it very different in so many ways from Nancy Pelosi, both, you know, the, the role they played as speaker. But Nancy Pelosi, also a prolific fundraiser for her party. She stepped away. Now she's the speaker emerita and is continuing. She's running for reelection. That's not making <laughs> everybody happy. Kevin Maddock. <laughs> but she's yeah, but she is continuing to raise money for the party, something that it'll be. I don't think McCarthy's going to necessarily want to no, do. I mean, but... his leaving, you know, before before the end of the term, it you know, with the eviction of George Santos, get throwing him out of the House. I mean, there are majorities down to like two or three votes right now. Right. And I think that's something that's going to be fascinating. Also, as we see a potential special election um, happen in his district, which is a safe red seat, we should say this is not going to like change the makeup of the California delegation per se. It does open up a rare opportunity <laughs> to run for Congress in a safe seat. But it's a huge loss of power for it California is. and part of a trend as well with Feinstein's death and Pelosi stepping down. Yeah. And we're seeing longtime, you know, veterans like Anna Eshoo in the South Bay decides to step down. So it is definitely a, a moment of transition here. But I mean, in some of those cases, these are people who have served for decades or in their 70s or beyond. He is not. No. And so this really, I think, is indicative of this moment, um, you know, in American politics. Quickly before we break, any thoughts on who might run for that seat? Well, you know, you have to look, first of all, at which Senate and Assembly seats are nested within that district. Shannon Grove, state senator, she's been down there for quite a while. Uh, Vince Fong is in the Assembly. Uh, He may run as well. Uh, I'm sure they're all looking at it, doing polling, checking their fundraising. Uh, And uh, there is also, we should say, already, even before he stepped down, there is a kind of a MAGA Republican running who was getting some help from Roger Stone, who was kind of the consigliere to Donald Trump. Um, so it, that he will probably stay in the race. And then we'll see if, you know, some better known Republicans jump in as well. All right. And probably a Democrat or two. <laughs> yeah. but it won't really matter. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. And that means more elections for folks in that district because they'll probably be two next year. OK, we are going to take a short break. When we come back, we will be joined by PG&E CEO Patty Poppy. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. 
I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are thrilled to welcome PG&E CEO Patty Poppy. She took over the largest investor-owned utility in California as it was emerging for bankruptcy in the second time in 20 years. Must have been quite a job interview, (laughs) Patty Poppy. Welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you for having me. Great to be with you. Well, before we talk about your current role, I do want to go back. Um, You grew up in Michigan. I think your mom was a school principal and teacher. Your dad was a nuclear engineer. And I mean, this is a very big job in an area that hadn't does not has not historically always had women leaders. I'm curious, like how your parents jobs and your upbringing informed your career path. Oh, well, that's a great question. You know, I always would. I always say my dad taught me how to be an engineer and my mom taught me how to be a leader. She was a great school principal. We all know that Uh, Schools are such important places in the lives of so many people, and she was a great principal and a great leader for her teachers, so I got to see her do that, and that was always inspiring to me. Well, and as Marisa said, you were probably found yourself being the only woman or one of the few women in rooms, whether it was in the corporate suites or even in some of the uh, undergrad and business school and post-grad uh, classes you took. You took some really male, male-oriented male kinds of industrial engineering. Yeah. I mean, GM. What was yeah. that like? What did you learn from that? What difference did it make f- to have you in the room at those times? Well, since I had six sisters at home, I probably had plenty of women in my life <laughs> oh my <laughs> telling me wow. what to do. I was the baby, so I got lots of instruction, let's just say. Uh, but I think growing up in automotive as an operator, as an engineer, you know, my dad... Um, uh, really wanted me to be an engineer. He inspired and encouraged me to do so. Uh, none of my other sisters had been engineers, so I was sort of his last, last, last ditch <laughs> effort to get one out of the bunch. And so I'm his great pride and joy that way. But, uh, you know, work, growing up in automotive, um, it was an interesting era at General Motors. There actually were more women than you might expect. Uh, Mary Barra is the CEO at General Motors. She and I were contemporaries. She was a little bit ahead of me, but... Um, we had a lot of other really 
amazing women in operations. And so I grew up not actually thinking it was that strange. Mm. Uh, in fact, I felt like it was um, very well received. And, and maybe in some ways it was an advantage because people wanted to have more diverse leadership. And so maybe I got tested a little more early mm. and, and pushed further and faster and, um, you know, was able to deliver when called. And so uh, I feel good about uh, what General Motors prepared me for. Uh, professionally. How did you make the leap into energy? You went to DTE Energy and then CMS. I think they're both also investor in utilities in Michigan. That's right. That's right. My Well, my dad actually worked for uh, Consumers Energy, CMS Energy. Oh. So he retired from CMS Energy, had done built nuclear power plants around um, uh, the, the country. And um, so I was familiar with energy, but had been in automotive. And really, at, at General Motors, we had to move around a lot. And I had young children, and that's one of the advantages of working for uh, a, an energy company or a utility. We don't have to move. And so my husband and I made a, you know, a family decision to settle in Michigan with our family and, and raise our daughters. And so uh, we, we really made a personal decision that ended up being a really exciting professional move in the long run. Had I known, I had no idea yeah. at the time. So you ended up transitioning to PG&E. Uh, you were hired uh, roughly 2020. Um, and, you know, that was a time when the company was still, you know, in bankruptcy, emergency, um, emerging from bankruptcy, dealing with the aftermath of some devastating fires. What made you think that's the job right. that I want? <laughs> Super easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think um, I was compelled watching from afar, having been CEO at CMS Energy for um, uh, at that time five years. That was in my hometown. It was a very well-run company. We had had our, our own transformation, and so I was able to observe and learn through that transformation at CMS, and then to lead it myself. I did feel like we I could help. Um, I watched from afar what was happening here in California and specifically for PG&E, such an iconic company after everything the company had been through and the, the customers and our communities had been through. I felt like PG&E really needed an operating-oriented leader, and I got a lot of calls. A lot of people called and asked me to consider taking the job, and the first several calls, I was like, no, no, no. You know, I'm I'm in a great place in my hometown. Lived next door to my sister and next door to my dad. There was no reason for me to mm. move. But then, as I really considered the seriousness of what was happening here, I I truly felt compelled to come and make a difference. So it sounds like you wanted the challenge because one of the things, like prepping for this, I'm counting them up. I mean, before you arrived, the company had pled guilty or been found guilty of 90 felony counts and faced more. Like that feels like a bit of a red flag. I mean, <laughs> what, what was your thought in terms of like what you could bring to the table that might be different? Yeah, well, I knew what it meant to run a, a very strong, ethical and safe company. And I knew it was possible for PG&E, too. And what I know is that the people who work for PG&E are not criminals. These are not bad people who set out to do harm. The people, the kind of people who are attracted to a utility and the kind of people who are attracted to PG&E are your neighbors, your friends, your family that set out to have a career at a company where they know they can make a difference in their hometown. And I wanted those people to feel valued and respected again. Can I push back? Though? I mean, 
yes, the line folks, I think, are all members mm. of our community. But, I mean, this is a company, we were both there on the scene when San Bruno blew up, right? Mm. This nat- natural mm-hmm. gas explosion. And that was just the first of many investigations that found shoddy record keeping, lying to regulators, covering up things in order to maximize profits. Like, mm. can you say that everybody really had the community's best interest in line historically? Yeah, so maybe I'm I'm talking generally. There's always the risk of uh, bad apples, for sure. And I guess maybe what I'm saying is that I knew that a company like this could be run well, and that could be trustworthy, and um, that with the right kind of leadership and the right kind of focus on what is happening on the ground every day, not distracted by, you know, what's new and interesting in the globe, but really focus on what's happening here today. This company could be really important for the clean energy transition, for the ambitions of the state and the ambitions of the globe to thwart the effects of climate change. This company is essential to California's ambition in the world's I mean, we have uh, no choice. forecast. We have no choice. <laughs> right. we, we have to pay you guys no matter what as people uh-huh. who live in this region. <laughs> you, you said a moment ago that uh, you thought that PG&E could be an ethical, ethically run company, which mm-hmm. suggests that there were things that happened before you got there that weren't so ethical. What, what were you thinking? Well, you know, I don't, I wasn't here. And so it was very hard for me well, to- Well, you must have looked at that well, pattern, right, before you took the job. I mean, I saw- the results of a a lot of things that contributed to the outcomes that were so devastating to so many. And I knew that that did not have to be our future and that did not have to be the reality for the citizens of California who are served by PG&E, that we could be a force for good. And so that that is really what I have been relentlessly focused on since the day I got here. My focus is on making sure that we are trustworthy, that we are honest and ethical and safe and that we are doing what is necessary every single day to make it safer. Can I ask about the very structure of investor-owned utilities? Mm-hmm. As somebody who did not come from a business or energy world, as I have covered, and I've covered PG&E um, and a lot of these tragedies for the last 20 years, why should a public utility be publicly traded? Like, why should something that we all rely on be subject to the whims of Wall Street, the desire to, you know, make shareholders... Quarterly earnings reports. Yeah. And and isn't that in itself a conflict? Yeah, that is a great question. And I will tell you, when I left automotive uh, and went to the energy industry and I was I was running power plants, I had the same thought. I thought, wowee, why, why is it where we need to make a profit here? Shouldn't we be doing, like, our public good? And then the more I learned... And the more I understood, particularly the business model, where we have to attract uh, huge sums of capital to invest in the infrastructure, because customers don't pay for that every, they don't pay for it real time. Customers make a mortgage payment, if you will, on all of the assets, but we have to get the money from uh, the capital markets. Mm -hmm. And so what I learned is that investor-owned utilities actually do have to compete. We have to compete for capital. And when we compete for capital, we are benchmarked like crazy. Wall Street actually is a very important leg of the stool to make sure that we do good work. And when we don't do good work, Wall Street exits. And so the fact that we have to attract capital actually helps create some real tension around our performance relative to our peers. And I can tell you, they rack and stack us. 
and PG&E was at the bottom of the list. When you say when performance, though, does that mean financial performance or? Well, I think you might be surprised. Our investors recognize that there's a virtuous cycle. It starts with serving customers. When you serve customers well, and you keep the system safe, then regulators are more apt to be able to approve the things that you need to invest in, that that's when the investor gets their return. But they know if you lose trust with your regulator, you lose trust with your customers, you're not going to get easy yeses and and follow through and, and support for your ambitions. You know, the, the company, of course, went into bankruptcy, which is a way of restructuring debt. And, you know, I, a lot of people see that as a way of, of escaping responsibility mm-hmm. with ratepayers. Uh, in fact, many in Wall Street, on Wall Street, made kind of a killing, uh, some of the hedge funds and others. Uh, you know, how do you respond to that criticism, you know, that uh, the only because real the company, winner of all that yeah. was was the company and, and the shareholders? And the company did come out very similar, right? I mean, they're, it, it's structured the same, at least. Yeah, it is structured the same. And the state did have a, an option. I mean, the state had a choice to split up PG&E or or municipalized PG&E mm-hmm. at that moment. But I think when they looked at all the calculus, the idea of of breaking up the company actually was not in the best interest of the people that we serve. And I will say that the company was not absolved of the, of the debts in many ways. We're still um, uh, at a, a sub-investment grade. Mm-hmm. Um, we still have to work very hard to attract capital from the capital markets. So there's no doubt, and a lot of investors lost it all. And I want to just clarify one thing. When we talk about shareholders, it's kind of interesting to me because a shareholder at a utility, I want to tell you who we're talking about. We are not talking about the hedge funds. We're not talking about the big fat cats well, we on were Wall for Street. A sm- a small we were period. when we were in yeah. bankruptcy yeah. because they, those guys they play know both how, sides. Yes, yeah. they know how to come in and, and make their move. But a good utility, a utility like PG&E, our shareholders are moms and pops. Heck, you guys probably are shareholders. You might not know it, but in your retirement funds, in your 401ks, in the firefighters funds, in the police funds, in the teachers, they're invested in utilities Mm. and they're invested in PG&E. So shareholders at PG&E are moms and pops. And I want to keep my promise to them too. They've entrusted their life savings to a mutual fund or something and asking for a little return to come back. That's what PG&E delivers when we deliver profits. We deliver profits for those moms and pops who are funding the infrastructure that keeps people safe in California. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Our guest today, PG&E CEO Patty Poppy. I want to ask about corporate culture. Um, We've been told that your motto is leading with love. And we mentioned earlier, you know, these decimating fires and natural gas explosion in San Bruno, um, felony charges, bankruptcy. Like, what was the morale like when you got there? And how do you change that and potentially the culture of a company if that's needed? Well, culture change at PG&E is the number one priority because it's through our people that we deliver what we do. And there is no doubt that people had um, were shaken about their role in the past, their role in the future. How do they make it right? It's a big entity. What is PG&E? And uh, leading with love is a fundamental tenet that I felt needed to interrupt business status quo. To come in and say, hello, I'm your new CEO and I lead with love. 
I got a lot of like uh, reactions. <laughs> like, oh, she's from the Midwest. Yeah, oh, yeah, she's from Michigan. But uh, you or know, yeah. yeah, no, no, the Midwest for sure. And uh, they, they, you know, in fact, I had people say, you know what, you can't say that. You're losing credibility. <laughs> I said, oh, my friends, get used to it, because I think love is essential ingredient. Ingredient. You know, you look at professional athletes, for example. Uh, I'm a huge Golden State Warriors fan and have been for a long time, long oh, before I moved that. here. Maybe that's why I took the <laughs> yeah, shot. Right. Draymond is, <laughs> is from Michigan. Yeah, so. that's true, uh-huh. Michigan State. But, um, you know, I, the athletes very the, and the winning teams, of course, they always talk about how they love their teammates, they love their coach, they love the players. Why is that full expression of joy of the game? Constrained to only professional athletes. Hmm. Why know, can't we love that each be? Other. There we, you we go. Like to talk about that, okay, <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> you know, but in addition to the joy, or maybe mm. you know, it adds to the joy, uh, are the salaries and the bonuses that a lot of the executives get. It's a lot of money. I think you're uh, you make fifty one million. I think uh, per year. No, 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 that no. Was, that was a one time make whole. I had already earned that money at my previous company, and the only way I wasn't going to leave that on the table to take the job. So okay. they paid me what I had in made. In 2021, yeah. Okay, was, but yeah. there was also on the table, I think, $188 million in raises and bonuses for executives at a time when, you know, so many terrible things were happening. And I think a lot of people on the outside look and say, where is the accountability? Why do people working for companies that are either, you know, financially not doing well or doing bad things, uh, you know, in out in the world as, as you know, with the wildfires and so on, why are, why are people getting rewarded? Well, um, I will say this. To attract talent, there are market rates for leadership, and and people can work a lot of places. When I joined PG&E, the entire executive team was vacant. So there was no one there making money off what had happened. They had all been fired or had quit. I had to hire an entirely new team. I searched the entire world and the country for the best and brightest leaders, and I have to pay them to come. And they left good jobs. They did not need to come. And they did. And so there's there's a market rate for talent, just like there's a market rate for athletes, just like there's a market rate for great radio broadcasters. It's not the same as athletes. Nor is mine. Nor is mine. But, you know, I think that, that this idea that, that to invest in leadership is essential to turning the company around. And so to invest in leadership, there darn better be a return on investment for customers and for our um uh, co-workers to have the right leaders in place. Well, I want to talk about customers. We just saw uh, approval of pg e rates to go up for everyone in January. Um, the average is going to be about $30 a month, which adds up over the yes, course of does. a year to hundreds of dollars. Uh, why is this happening? And especially given everything we've talked about, you know, you haven't been CEO forever, but the customers have been paying for the, you know, for a long time. And there's been a lot in the past of evidence of not necessarily investing that money wisely or doing all the things that were promised under previous rates. So what's the case to, to, to I know you already made it to the regulators, but to the rate payers that this is justified? Yeah, well, first of all, I when I first got here, I heard a lot of people say to me, oh, my gosh, PG&E chose profits over safety. You didn't invest in the infrastructure. Well, I will tell you, the leadership team at the helm of PG&E is very focused on delivering the safe infrastructure that will stand the test of time. That does cost something. The The good news is that rate increase that we requested, and it's a four-year rate increase, 
We hadn't had one in a couple years. We we put in for this rate increase. There is some catch up for investments we've made in hardening the system and making the system safe to wildfire. We've had significant improvement in that area, which I'll talk about. But the idea that over that four years, 2023, 2024, 25, 25 and 2026, the average, the compound average rate increase for each of those four years is going to be around 3%. It just so happens the first year is the biggest bump, and then actually it will come down next year and come down again the next year. There's some catch-up between 23 and 2024 that is embedded in that increase that will get spread back out over time. And that is largely to underground a lot of the wires, uh, the, the That's lines? The, the undergrounding is a small piece. It's a lot. 85% of it is safety and infrastructure, though, investments all over the system. And the undergrounding was a, a small piece of that increase that the the regulators really wanted to see us do more. Could we do more? And didn't want to write a blank check and, mm-hmm. yes, tell us to go collect those dollars before we proved we could do it. I'm happy to report that this year we will have underground 350 miles of line that we have never done that before, almost double what we've ever done before. And... <sighs> For years, we heard that was way too expensive. Mm. So is that is has the technology changed? Is it just we're at a point where that just needs to happen? Two things. One, the comparison to building overhead conductor, which has been the standard, to what we're doing today takes into account all of vegetation management that we're doing today that we mm. were not doing before. PG&E spends $1.5 to $1.8 billion a year taking down trees. trees. That's a problem. Yeah. California, we need to save the trees. And we need to, instead of investing over a billion dollars a year, invest that same amount in a capital investment, you actually can invest in that undergrounding for less. It is lower cost than what we are doing today. Before Before we weren't doing as much vegetation management, so it wasn't as much of a trade. But today we have to or didn't, they, gonna, didn't the executives say they were doing it, and a lot of it wasn't getting done? I can't, I can't actually count. I don't yeah. know that. I don't well, know that to be another true. Another question, though. How much of this, the problem with wildfires and, you know, lines, trees falling, lines mm-hmm. getting, you know, sparking and so on, how much of that can be resolved, do you think, from undergrounding versus new technology or hardening the system, adding resiliency? It is all of the above. And I will say on, on undergrounding, we talk about our 10,000-mile plan and I sometimes wish I had called it the 9,442-mile <laughs> plan because they're very specific miles. These aren't. It isn't an arbitrary 10,000. These are very specific, high-risk miles in the places where the trees are coming in contact with the lines. And trees that look healthy on the outside that have some issue in, in, the, in the roots, we can now protect customers with those specific miles being underground. That is PG&E CEO Patty Poppy. Thank you for coming in. Thanks a lot. Wish we had more time. Oh, I do too. I'll come back anytime. All right. (laughs) That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is Christopher Beal. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next time. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. 
Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.